The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We're excited about our guests today. We're talking about a brand new book called Hope on Earth, and it was co-written by Paul Ehrlich and Michael Charles Tobias. And they hardly need introduction. They're such rock stars in the environmental world. But many of you will know Paul Ehrlich um, as the Bing Professor of Population Studies and the president of the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford University. He kind of hit the stage in 1968 with his book that was co-written with his wife, Anne, called The Population Bomb. And since then, he's been doing amazing thought leadership in the ecology and environmental world, and many have followed in his footsteps. Michael Charles Tobias is an ecologist, an author, a filmmaker, and president of the Dancing Star Foundation, which is a nonprofit based in California that we'll talk about a little bit uh, in just a moment. But this new book called Hope on Earth is a very interesting construct. It was written as a conversation between Paul and Michael, and I'm hoping to replicate some of that conversation here today on Go Green Radio because it was so interesting to be able to sort of eavesdrop on the conversation that the two of you had. Paul, I'd like to start with you. I've hosted Go Green Radio for six years now, not a huge amount of time in the span of humanity, but a while, and I think that in that time, we've never had a guest who could talk about his experience in living through World War II and the post war years and how that experience shaped his views on the environment and ecology. And you touched on that in the book, and I'd love for you to share that perspective with our listeners. Well, it was an incredible experience. In fact, I think anybody my age will say the same thing. If you were old enough to remember the Second World War, it was the biggest event in your life. Uh, one of the things I learned about the environment in the in just in the course of observing what happened then was how rapidly we can change our consumption patterns because the United States went from building automobiles and uh, uh, consumer goods in late 1941 almost instantly into rationing all sorts of things and building airplanes, howitzers, submarines, and so on. So I learned early on, uh, A, how big the world was and how dangerous the world was and how fast you can change to meet those dangers. Uh, and then afterwards, I lived through a period when we all hoped war was a, something of the past and that, that nuclear weapons would stop war and so on. Um, and then I went to college with uh, veterans of the Second World War. I was not old enough to fight. I was stupid enough to want to fight. I uh, I was a teenager, of course, and uh, and teenagers don't have fully myelinated brains. But uh, <laughs> I live with two. I can account for that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was in college that, with the veterans of the Second World War, we began to discuss population and environmental problems, which were then be appearing all over the place. 
and things have gone on from there. So it was a, an incredible experience to be able. I followed the war with pins on maps and so on in great detail, and I'm still sort of a, uh, a history buff on, uh, on military history. You know, it's interesting what you say about how rapidly consumption patterns changed during those years from rationing things to uh, not long after the war was over. The, the 1950s were seen as a huge uh, explosion of consumption here in America and all kinds of consumer goods coming on the mi- market. And Michael, there are a lot of economists that tell us that uh, population growth and this uh, c- coupling of consumerism with population growth is what leads to economic prosperity, that that's what um, our economy depends upon. What are your thoughts on this? Well, the, the economic miracle, for example, which is now being ascribed to the continent of Africa, coincides with the fact that projections for population growth in that continent are the highest on the planet as we look toward 2050 and the greatest disparities with with regard to economic inequality gaps. So this is a dialectic that is proving to have an enormous fallout in terms of consequences for biodiversity, for women's empowerment, for quality of life indicators for children, and for economists themselves who are still, I believe, condemned to the notion that more people is better because it means more consumption or more products that can be sold. So we're in a real crisis. I, back in 1994, for the UN Population Conference in Cairo, wrote a book called World War III, in which many of the things Paul just said, I kind of tried to replicate with respect to the fact that I believe our species was and continues in even more escalated levels and degrees to have a war with itself and with the planet. And this, this kind of fallout is resulting in huge attrition. We're, we're in a sixth extinction spasm. We're seeing greater disparities between the rich and the poor than ever before. And the devastation that comes from political inertia and apathy as a result of people feeling marginalized, feeling powerless, feeling voiceless, is, has, has achieved a level I don't think we've ever seen in human history because we've never had so many people in human history. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been no shortage of books, articles, and even episodes on this show devoted to this um, nexus between human population and environmental degradation. Now, Paul, back in 1968, when you uh, published your book, The Population Bomb, part of what you were talking about was the difficulty that we would have in feeding uh humanity as it grew to record numbers. And for some people, they would say, oh, well, you know, the Green Revolution took care of that. And that quelled many people's fear that we'd be unable to feed a burgeoning human population. But of course, we know there's more to food than simply the amount of it that we can grow. Uh, We have matters of nutritional content of the food, the ability to transport the food, and what happens to the soil as it begins to degrade as a result of overuse of pesticides. Paul, what do you see as the most pressing issues ahead of us in the 21st century when it comes to our food system? Well, one of the pressing issues is how you get rid of the idiots who say, oh, well, there'll be no problem. The Green Revolution solved it. Well, no problem means something on the order of 300 million people starved to death since we wrote the population bomb. No problem. They said then not to worry. We'll be able to, you know, this is 1968. There were three and a half billion people. Maybe half a billion or a few more were hungry at that time. And they said, 
relax, we can easily, technology will feed 5 billion, 6 billion people, no sweat, we're going to do it, and so on. Well, now we got 7.2 billion people. Of mm-hmm. those, very close to a billion are hungry, and another 2 billion, roughly, are micronutrient malnourished, which means, among other things, they're more uh, susceptible to disease. Uh, they keep saying how easy it's going to be to feed many, many more people in the future, but we don't feed the people we have now. And as you say, it's not just the amount we grow, it's how it's distributed, what the economic system does, how much is wasted, on and on and on. The biggest problems that I see in the food system now, and of course food prices are rising at this very moment, is going to be that a lot of people aren't going to be able to afford it, and the climate disruption is very likely to very much reduce um, how much we're able to produce. For example, uh, basic crops like wheat in many areas, it's getting too hot for it to grow. Uh, we're losing the nutrient value as we get more CO2 in the atmosphere. A recent study by Harvard shows that the, the basic crops uh, have less nutrient value when they're grown in higher CO2. So uh, we already have a situation in which, say, 2.5 billion people are hungry in one sense or another, and we still have idiots saying how easy it's going to be to feed another another two and a half billion people roughly by the middle of the century. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's going to be easy, I hope it is, but I see no sign of that. In fact, every single indicator of what's happening to the food system and what's happening to the very tightly related climate system uh, is indicating that it's going to be harder and harder. Uh, to supply people with adequate food. So, like most scientists, I'm very, very worried about the food situation. Michael, you talk extensively in the book about your food choices and some of your personal beliefs along these lines. I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about that. Well, I think that vegetarianism is, is it should be mandatory. If, if, if there were legislative ways to affect that, I'd, I'd be all for it. I'd be the first at the polls. But I, I believe it's important to point out that, for example, in the United States, approximately 92.5 pounds of meat are consumed annually per person. And this accounts for probably the largest abstraction of fresh water, of which there is very little left for drinking um, mm-hmm. in North America as we continue to deplete aquifers and groundwater supplies are continually polluted and gray water becomes the, the new standard protocol for, for what's uh, potable. Um, in the developing countries, so-called, something like 80% of meat-eating is now the norm, especially for the youth, and it's becoming an increasing rarity that they can afford it. But not only, not only is meat uh, having an incredibly and empirically documented impact on the environment, which is negative, it's also accounting for the largest pathways for antibiotics that are of course, screwing up the entire microbiotic communities worldwide. But it's also uh, among the six major greenhouse gases, it's contributing the largest amount of probably the most aggressive of those, which is methane. And we know now from studies that have been done throughout the world and peer-reviewed that that something like 40% of the methane now going into into the troposphere, into the upper atmosphere, is coming from the raising of livestock. So both for scientific but especially personally speaking, for ethical reasons, I really prescribe vegetarianism or better yet, veganism. And that has been my choice for decades and decades and that of my wife. And we don't have children. We decided not to have children 
for environmental environmental reasons. But if we did have children, we'd certainly encourage them and, and provide opportunities for them to embrace a vegetarian outlook. It's interesting. I have a goddaughter who, at the age of two, informed her parents over the dinner table up in, in Northern California that she would never eat an animal that had a face. Her parents, <laughs> who were both meat eaters, absolutely were stunned. This is a two-year-old kid who, infor- who informed them that no more at the dinner table. So I think that was great. And it also suggests uh, the statistics we're seeing from PETA and from other organizations like, like People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals worldwide that compassion in world farming may in fact mean compassion not just for the animals but for ourselves because with micronutrient deficiencies that Paul mentioned, we're also seeing that there's, a, there's an inequality here in terms of environmental justice. People who are poor worldwide have no access to high-quality food, let alone organic, good vegan cuisine, which is very expensive still. Uh, it hasn't scaled down yet to, to meet that, that growing disparity economically. But also, they're eating, they're eating junk food. Mm-hmm. And that's what they can afford. And this has got to change. Well, and you mentioned, and you say it so succinctly in the book, and it's perfect. Uh, calories are cheap, but nutrition is expensive. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a tremendous amount, well, and, and this is something that we'll get to, there's a tremendous amount of uh, social justice and environmental justice built into these conversations that we can't ignore. Um, you know, it's t- too often we read blogs and things that have the greatest uh, you know, ideas for what products we should be using, what food we should be buying. But the truth is that a lot of those uh, tremendous solutions are economically unavailable to so many people. We are going to take a quick commercial break, but there's so much more to talk about with Paul and Michael and their new book, Hope on Earth. So don't go away, folks. We've got more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Tolvanta Energy, visit us today at www.tolvantaenergy.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, we're discussing a brand new book called Hope on Earth. It's published by the University of Chicago Press, and it's co-authored by Paul Ehrlich and Michael Charles Tobias. Um, And the way that the book is constructed is very much like what we're doing here today on Go Green Radio. It's constructed as a conversation between two tremendously important thinkers um, and practitioners in the field of ecology and environmental protection in so many different aspects. Um, I want you all to Google both of their names and learn all that you can about their um, the books that they've done, the films that Michael has has produced. Um, it's it's a huge body of work. Too much to go into today, but uh, suffice it to say, we have two tremendously important thinkers on Go Green Radio today, Paul. I'd like to talk to you about something you touch on in the book. It's kind of a two-part question that I have for you. I'd like to know, first of all, what your assessment of the effectiveness of the Endangered Species Act is. And secondly, what is your greatest concern about the current trend in species extinction? Well, first of all, the Endangered Species Act was a pioneering piece of legislation. The U.S. ought to be proud of it. Uh, It has helped in many circumstances to protect part of biodiversity. One has to remember that biodiversity, the other organisms of the planet, that is not just the uh, the gorillas and the pandas and so on, but uh, the microorganisms in the soil, uh, the, uh, uh, the insects, the birds, the whole thing, are basically our life support system. And to the degree that we get rid of parts of our life support system, uh, our future gets darker and darker. So the Endangered Species Act was a good thing, Unhappily, it didn't go far enough, uh, it, partly because uh, Darwin's wonderful book was named The Origin of Species. There's a huge focus on different kinds of animals and plants. Uh, but basically, the most important thing today is the preservation of populations of different kinds of plants and animals. For example, uh, if we wiped out all of the honeybees in the world except for a single African population, we'd lose no species diversity, but we'd lose billions of dollars worth of pollination because you have to have lots and lots of populations of our life organisms that are in our life support system. So we really need an Endangered Populations Act to go along with the Endangered Species Act, something that stops us from destroying our life support systems, which are being destroyed right now ad lib. Uh, We are losing species more rapidly than at any time in the past, except during the six huge, uh, the so-called giant extinction episodes. But the continual erosion of a population diversity, the loss of uh, the the fact, for instance, that we have many fewer songbirds in North America than we used to have, that we have many fewer cod in the sea than we used to have. Cod are not extinct, but it used to be you could walk from New York to... uh, uh, to Nova Scotia on the backs of cod, and now there's virtually none. So, basic answer, Endangered Species Act, historic, important, important to reinforce, but much more so people have to understand they're utterly dependent on the other organisms of the planet for their lives. And if we don't protect large populations of or virtually all of them, 
we are mortgaging our children's future. You know, speaking of our children and their future, sometimes it's frustrating um, to work with uh, young folks that have so much potential to solve some of the problems that we see in our environment today because they want to see what's the newest, freshest, most now information that they can find on Twitter or somebody has posted a caption on Instagram. And that that new information is what captivates their attention. And Michael, you made a comment early in the book regarding the Exxon Valdez spill, and I'd like for you to further discuss it. Here's what you said. Today's undergraduate students weren't even alive at the time. We do not seem to learn from our mistakes as a culture. We pass down these terrible environmental legacy, legacies, but the meaning, the substance eludes us. Talk to us a little bit more about that, that thought. Well, I made a film right at, about six months after the Exxon Valdez disaster in the late 80s, and what really stunned me more than any other um, memory of, of the making of that film for Discovery Channel was the fact that uh, 1,200 miles away from where the... Uh, the ship actually collided and, and started hemorrhaging oil uh, in the Gulf of Alaska. Out in the, in the remote Aleutian Islands, we flew out in a helicopter to an area where the Coast Guard had told us there was oil washing up six months later. And indeed, when we landed, I was already knee-deep in oil walking through the intertidal area, and we mm. could see dead birds, fish, even grizzly bear that had been feeding on dead fish, dead eagles, the, the sight of carnage was so heinous that, that my memory blurs because I, I don't want to recall the tragedy of that. And we've seen it repeated constantly. We saw it, of course, in the, in, in the British Petroleum spill, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, was, was just absolutely devastating and continues to wreak havoc, as it will in the Gulf of Alaska for hundreds of years, because it just doesn't go away. It infiltrates beneath the sand. It, it aggregates amongst particles just like uh, pollution does when it comes down and it, it gravitates towards objects that it can glom onto. And this is what leads, for example, to lower respiratory infections with the, amongst the alveoli in our lungs where we get these particulate matter. And, and the EPA has devoted annals of its history to combating these, especially with coal and so on. So everything is interconnected. But the the, the tragedy of these huge ecological calamities, which we've seen in recent decades particularly, um, is, is actually not new. And students can go back to someone like John James Audubon, who at one point in his early career saw billions of passenger pigeons flying through the skies and would never in his, in his wildest dreams, or I should say nightmares, imagine that the last survivor of her kind, the most multitudinous avian species to ever grace the heavens above North America, would go extinct in the guise of one sadly woman named Martha, a female passenger pigeon at the Cincinnati Zoo uh, 100 years ago that she went extinct. So this is, this is a wake-up call. It was also 100 years ago, of course, that John Muir died, founder, really, of America's most activist environmental movement with the Sierra Club. And man who converted Teddy Roosevelt to finally think about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and National Park Service. We have a lot of links that are both negative and positive. A few days ago in England, they mourned, you know, the, the beginning of World War I and Britain's entry into that horrible calamity, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Mm-hmm. Always just speaking of the endangered 
Species Act and brilliantly raised the idea of an Endangered Population Act. I'd like to see an Endangered Habitat Act, which was, in fact, the idea behind the Wilderness Act. But as we know, wilderness, um, if you look at, for example, the hotspots, the 35 terrestrial hotspots, which Norman Myers and the MacArthur Foundation and Russell Mittermeier and Conservation International and our own foundation pushing the film hotspots with them has pointed out, we have got about 2.8% on the planet of terrestrial Earth that's been diagnosed thus far, which contains the highest number of vascular or flowering plants. It contains the largest genetic basis for going forward, if you will, of life on Earth, and we're wiping it out quickly. Your, your listeners need only compare, I won't go into the data, but just compare the demographic Republic of Congo in Central Africa with Italy right now, today. Look at the numbers and look at the projections for the year 2050, and in a nutshell, you see the dialectic that we're looking at and really derives from the same mindsets that created the Exxon Valdez disaster to begin with and the outcome of that for wildlife, for human life, because, of course, the indigenous peoples of Alaska are still suffering the aftermath of that oil spill decades ago. Well, and, and we don't have to look very far to see that some of our infrastructure is the cause of some of our disasters on an ecological and environmental uh, platform. I mean, even just recently what happened in Toledo with the loss of drinking water uh, as the result of an algae bloom, which came from, uh, you know, agriculture runoff and things like that, that our, our water infrastructure wasn't ready to handle that and we didn't have the protections in place to, um, you know, to prevent that. Our infrastructure is in bad shape. As our population grows, we don't even have the infrastructure to feed the population that we not just feed food, but feed water and energy and what have you to. As it stands, Paul, you make mention of this in the book. You say we need to revamp the entire energy handling system of the planet in basically maybe a decade or so. We're also going to have to change our water handling infrastructure continuously for the next at least 1,000 years. And we haven't even got our present infrastructure in decent shape to say nothing about rebuilding it for flexibility and continuous modification. The problem is these infrastructure updates are often in the hands of politicians, and it's politicians, and it's not a sexy topic um, to talk about when they're trying to win votes. Well, what it's are not we a sexy do? topic, and our politicians <laughs> aren't all that bright, because really bright people, when you see the kind of uh, what's going on in politics today, don't want to go into it. I mean, it's typical with the, the um, Toledo incident, was covered extensively in the news media. Not a single thing that I heard, and I doubt if anybody else heard it, pointed out that it's one of the symptoms of vast overpopulation in the United States, mm-hmm. if you got, and in the world. Uh, why are we having to, to use so much fertilizer and use it so sloppily? Because that's the only way they know how to try and grow enough food to keep the food production up with the population. The food system itself is the biggest donor of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere of any of the human systems. Uh, and one of the reasons that they got the algal bloom so early and so large is it's getting hotter. So there's a population connection both through agriculture and the agricultural runoff, and also a population connection because the more people we have, the hotter the planet gets. Uh, and uh, there's not a word about saying, you know, what we need to do in the United States is stop being so proud of having 315 uh, million people in the country. 
uh, because that's disgusting. It's, it's absolutely guaranteeing that our great-grandchildren are going to have miserable lives. We should be back around 100 million absolute maximum. and We should have government policies that move us in that direction, particularly policies to improve the status of women, make sure that every single sexually active human being has modern birth control acceptable, uh, accessible to them, and safe backup abortion if necessary, and nobody wants it to be necessary, but it sometimes is. Uh, and yet the media just gibber on about, oh, well, we haven't fixed up our infrastructure. That's true, but population growth is outrunning infrastructure over the entire planet. It's not just in the United States. Uh, I live in a very modern building, but very frequently the water coming into our building here in modern California uh, is uh, totally rust-colored because the ancient pipes in the Palo Alto area are deteriorating. Uh, look what happened down in L.A. to, uh, to the, uh, uh, the flooding uh, by an ancient pipe bursting. Uh, look yeah. at the bridges falling into the river. Population is growing rapidly. Infrastructure is deteriorating rapidly. The food situation is deteriorating rapidly. Very few people. How many times have you seen anybody on the mass media point out that Ebola and diseases like that are made more and more common in the human population as the human population size grows? Not mentioned at all. So in other words, we have a broken education system, a broken media system. You're a very rare exception, as you perfectly, perfectly well know. So the infrastructure problem is one more indication that there are many too many people on the planet, that the rich are consuming much too much compared to the poor who are going to become much poorer. As Michael points out, if you look at the demographics in Africa, all you can see in the future is vast poverty uh, and huge suffering. Uh, and uh, so, uh, end of sermon, but there's a population connection to virtually every problem that we have on the planet, virtually everyone. Well, and I appreciate, you know, what you've said, Paul. I think that, you know, there's a lot of controversy on population that doesn't need to happen. There is a lot more common ground than people of various backgrounds think. Um, and, and sometimes when you talk about human population and, um, and the issues related to that, it becomes fired up very fast and it doesn't need to be. We can discuss these things as you both did in this book. You didn't agree on everything, on every single point, but you maintain civil discourse and heaven help us if we can't sit down and have conversations about these issues unless it's with people that we absolutely agree with. We have to be able to have civil discourse, even with people that we don't perfectly agree with. It's too important. And I appreciate you two role modeling that in your book, Hope on Earth. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but there's so much more when we come back. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're discussing a brand new book, hot off the presses, called Hope on Earth. And we have both of the co-authors with us. Michael, I want to go to you because there was a point in the book where you ask a great question. You say, our species occupies itself with every conceivable piece of information. So why is it so difficult to target what we know, join forces, and get down to the hard work of actually saving human beings from hunger and other species from extinction? Why aren't interdisciplinary ecologists working with energy experts and climatologists and species-specific experts? able to assess such causal relationships and thereby improve the overall legal protections necessary to make informed decisions. Michael, talk to our listeners about the obstacles you see standing in the way of this perfectly reasonable solution. I think there's an ecological illiteracy crisis. It's an epidemic in our schools. And despite the tremendous reengineering mantras that are being espoused from, from physics labs and mathematical think tanks to um, non-profit think tanks, which are looking both sides of the political spectrum at what we can do collectively to work efficiently to solve some of these absolutely horrendous and unprecedented problems for the human species and for all other species. There's possibly a glut of data and white noise that makes it very difficult to see through to clarity. Uh, It's bewildering. And there's so much data pouring in with so many new ways in which data can get to us, wanted or unwanted, uh, believable or not plausible, that it, we, we spend a lot of time going through the trillions of bytes of data that hit us every second, literally, and the hundreds of thousands of advertisements that hit kids before they graduate from high school. And one of the points that has really impressed me over the years is a continuing and escalating statistic which suggests that high school students, by the time they're ready to start looking at a college education, have had so little time outdoors with the wilderness, know so few species that they can name, 
versus the hundreds of labels and brands and record groups and, and clothing types that they can name readily and fluently, that one has to step back and ask, what's it going to take to get young people out in the forests that are left uh, or the second or third growth forests that are left and, and really get them going in the realm of conservation. There are new devices like Leaf Snap, which the Smithsonian has been promoting, which enables you to sit in front of a tree and actually determine what the species is, what uh, co-symbiotic species inhabit or need, need that tree for their survival. And it can teach you this in, in an instant. And I love these technologies that are sprouting up everywhere, including new anti-poaching drones that are being developed. There's going to be a challenge in South Africa in coming months to test the best models for anti-poaching drones, which will, in effect, help people uh, in their homes, basically, to guide these on their computer, which will, in turn, inform park rangers on the ground to prevent the poachers from killing those rhinos or those Asian elephants or those Bengal tigers, which are down in numbers to the point where their extinction is almost assured unless the public gets behind helping them. These are ways of collaboration. I saw a TEDx at Berkeley recently in which the, the speaker talked about how saving the world can be fun using game technology, gaming technology, to induce people who are already so predisposed from the age of two, three, four to play games mm -hmm. um, to utilize that proclivity to help save the planet. These are different inroads to what is otherwise this blizzard of, of confrontational data. And it's all, by and large, bad news. And so people get very compassion fatigued. They mm -hmm. get weary. They get battle-worn. And I've met so many young people who, by the time they come up to their professors as sophomores or freshmen, they're, they're saying, is there any hope at all? And I think Paul and I really intended this book to show that Yes, there, there is hope. It's a question mark. We're on the edge. But we can, we can, in fact, as Leonardo da Vinci said, do more than just hope things happen and be willing to see things happen, but actually make them happen. Well, and I believe that to be true. I have to. Um, I have skin in the game. I have DNA that I've passed along, and, and I have to believe that's true. You know, Paul, of course, you probably have noticed this. Um, of course, Stanford, I'm sure, is never uh, wanting for students. But this next generation of young people who are in their childbearing years are less and less able to afford a college education. And we may see a drop-off in the interactions between thinkers like yourself and young people. If we were all to stipulate that human population needs to be lower, then I want to get down to the nitty-gritty and talk about what truly influences young people in their childbearing years to curb their reproduction. You know, if they're not able to talk to a professor like you, um, even if they have contraception and, and legal abortions and all that's, you know, accessible, even in those places, young people are still exceeding replacement rate with their families by choice. What do we need to do to influence young people in their childbearing years. Well, what is it what, going to take? Well, what it's going to take uh, is a change in norms. And uh, we're just speaking about the United States. It doesn't take a huge change in norms, but it means really moving down the average family size from uh, where it is now about two kids per couple uh, down to about one and a half. Uh, you need the halves so you can have presidents like George W. Bush and so on. So a few halves are not going to hurt at all. Uh, but the basic 
point is that people have to understand the decision is not how many children you want. It's what kind of world is the child or two children you're going to have going to live in. Uh, and if you have three kids, you're condemning them and people in their generation to more miserable lives. Uh, and so what you should really be starting with in school early on and in the media is the point that reproduction is a responsibility and that, yes, we all love children, but the number of children is very important. And if you're having more than two, you're certainly having more than your share and condemning your own children uh, to a worse life. And uh, until you get this as a standard thing throughout society, some people are going to continue to over-reproduce. As long as you get news stories about some moron who's had 18 children and is trying for 20, uh, and that is given as praise rather than this is a basically an antisocial, unethical, semi-criminal act, um, you're not going to make it. And, of course, all the odds are, and all of my colleagues who look at this carefully think we're not going to make it. In other words, I'm having an argument right now with Jim Brown, uh, who uh, is one of my close colleagues and a, and a great scientist, a member of the National Academy. When I told him I thought there was maybe a 10% chance of avoiding a collapse of civilization, uh, he said, I'm nuts. There's only maybe a 1% chance. And now, more recently, he's revised it again downward, and I'm, I'm tending to agree with him because we're not doing anything of the things we should be doing, controlling population, trying to reduce consumption, trying to make the world more equitable, give women rights everywhere, equal to men's, and so on. None of this stuff is happening. And so I agree with Michael that there's all kinds of reasons for hope if we change our ways. But the issue is how to change our ways. I'm working, for instance, with a, a brilliant uh, dancer and choreographer uh, to work on a modern dance uh, that brings these issues to the fore. She's already done one on climate change. Uh, I think we're going to have to work through the arts and through the social sciences, which right now are busily engaged in rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. They almost never attack serious <laughs> problems. Uh, and get them uh, on board to change the norms in society. We have proven without a shadow of a doubt that telling people what the science says does not change their behavior. We still have creationists, we have climate deniers, and they're in both cases winning in many circumstances. The war on women is being won in state legislature after state legislature. Telling people what the science says doesn't change their behavior. We have to find other ways of changing behavior, like haranguing people on TV sh uh, radio shows like yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, you know, honestly, and maybe this is coming from a mom's perspective, but it doesn't help to talk, you know, to kids about population control when sex is everywhere. And in as much as we can talk about controlling population, you know, it wouldn't hurt if we didn't see naked models for absolutely every product on the shelf. That would help the discussion a lot. Well, it, we it, it, isn't it interesting that sex <laughs> is used to sell every product, but you can't have decent sex education in schools? <laughs> well, in some places we do. I mean, I, I have I to some say, do. That's true. Yep. You know, Michael, there, I know there have to be success stories somewhere around the world, um, you know, that we can replicate. What do you know about uh, good models of these types of discussions happening? Well, well I think back to the population issue, um, some of the data that's come out recently, like from the Guttmacher Institute, which people can look up, they've got a great website, or Population Reference Bureau is another instant data access 
website that I would urge people to look at. Um, we know in the United States that approximately 40% of all pregnancies are unintended and about 20% are unwanted. That's a, that's a starting place. That, that tells us that, there's a lo- that nearly half of all couples in this country that have children either didn't mean to have them or don't want them. So that's a wake-up call, and it's something that, that we should be working with. Planned Parenthood is working with. Uh, the Obama administration has endorsed the fact that they're going to continue to push uh, aggressively to support Planned Parenthood, and, and many in this country are fighting the states like Alabama and Mississippi and others where women's rights are under attack, brutally so. But one of the areas that I find very interesting and I think deserves a tremendous amount of, of dissemination in, in, in the communication arenas is the fact that if you look at the um, seven or eight places in the world where we're seeing population increases, Macau, Luxembourg, Singapore, Korea, Hong Kong, Kirikau, and Albania, to be precise, we're looking at very small, largely urban conurbations, areas that are cities. And it comports with the fact that more than 50% of the human species is now living in urban urban environments. And it's going to increase to 70%, 75%, 80% of the human population in the next 20, 30 years will be inhabiting these vast megacities on the planet. Now, that could be construed, at least from a wilderness ideology, as a really good thing. It's going to potentially, I say potentially in question marks, uh, quotation question marks, it's going to alleviate pressure on wildlands. It's kind of like the analogy of what happened at Chernobyl and Pripyat, where you had this vast disaster of, of of radiation getting into the atmosphere because of a, a breakdown at the Chernobyl reactor, and it was immediately evacuated. The schools were evacuated within a half hour and left just abandoned now for decades. And there's been this reclamation by nature to, mm-hmm. in varying degrees, and, and it, it, it is a metaphor for me for the fact that as human beings depopulate the rural sectors from Africa to, to Asia, and you see this migration of workers into the cities looking for a better life, greener pasture, ironically, <laughs> where pasture they will not find, not in the cities, but they will find jobs. The question will be, as our population verges on 9.5, possibly 10 billion by the end of this century, depending on which demographers you trust more, and it comes down to trust and their data, data sets that you have to look at, but... When we hit 9.5 billion and the majority of those people are living in big cities, you've got to ask yourself, is this in fact going to be a, 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 a new life for the wilderness? And the, and the prospects are very possibly yes. It depends on the extractive techniques of the multinationals that are inhabiting these big cities and how they are allowed or not allowed to go out into those wilderness areas as they're doing continually in places like Indonesia to extract palm oil and zircon and other resources so Mm -hmm. this is one of the great queries that i think students can grapple with both their own fertility rates their own protections that they use the contraceptives that they use because they as paul said so perfectly it is a responsibility and a very imperative responsibility to recognize that childbearing is 
is its own kind of world war. You've got to be prepared with mm-hmm. the duties that are incumbent upon that. It's kind of like when you go into a, a shelter and you see all these unwanted animals mm-hmm. and you're thinking about adopting one and you choose one over the other, it's kind of a Sophie's choice. It's this yeah. horrifying prospect of taking one and leaving all the others. And when kids have, I would urge your listeners to look at a film that I did years ago called The Cost of Cool, in which we went out with a, a young teen mother who started weeping in a city park when she realized she'd lost her childhood by giving birth to kids that she loved, but she realized and acknowledged on camera she wished she hadn't done it. Well, you know, that is the the part of the, the pop culture. I mean, we have reality shows that cover this, and I think they're trying to make that exact point. I'm not sure how effective they are, but, um, you know, I do think that there is a role for pop culture to play in this discussion, and I'm hoping they step up to the plate. Well, Paul, population media in Vermont, is, which helped set up this this conversation today is, is doing mm-hmm. just that from Ethiopia to Mexico all over the world. They're, they're promoting in popular culture the, the, the values of restraint sexually. Mm-hmm. And women's rights in sitcoms. They're doing very well. Mm-hmm. Paul, I want to talk to you about a new organization that you're part of and that you uh, promoted in the book. Um, it's called the Millennium Alliance for Humanity and the Biosphere. The web site for that is mahb.stanford.edu. You know, there's so many NGOs in the world today. Everybody always wonders when a new one comes along, why do we need another one? (laughs) So tell us what's unique, different, and worthwhile about this new one. Well, the whole idea behind the mob was to get the the multiplicity of NGOs together and start cooperating on the issues they agree on um, and trying to to create a bottom-up uh, civil society force uh, to counter the uh, the plutocratic, theocratic, uh, industrial, top-down system we have in the United States now uh, and much of the rest of the world. And um, whether it succeeds or not, we don't know. It's very popular. There's a, uh, there's a blog now that's run for maybe 60 or 70 uh, issues. But the, uh, the, the attempt, for example, to get the arts and the social sciences uh, involved has really just begun. The arts are coming along, uh, and the uh, the social sciences, I must say, it's very, very difficult to get a social scientist to look at a really difficult problem. There are exceptions. <laughs> Naomi Oreskes, for instance, in history, uh, has written brilliant books on uh, the denialists, uh, the, uh, uh, the forces that are basically destroying our planet. There are some people who engage, but mostly... Uh, as I indicated before, the social scientists, particularly the economists, uh, are still uh, completely trapped in the old world paradigm. There are dozens of economists who understand we can't grow forever and the growth is the disease, not the cure. But the vast majority of economists, and as you can see, the politicians who listen to them, mm-hmm. uh, talk continuously about growth. we got to have 3% growth in the economy to really be healthy. The fact that that's impossible... Uh, over any length of time uh, is totally lost on them. But uh, the mob is pushing back on these things and trying to organize people to do that. And whether or not it's going to be successful, it's, uh, I, I, you know, we're, we're fighting against the stream. Uh, but I think just like many of my colleagues, I've been in a huge correspondence with a bunch now 
over the uh, failure of scientific societies to do anything significant about the situation in the world. Um, uh, we're going to keep fighting. And the, well, the mob glad. is something <laughs> anybody can join. Put your two cents in. Go to the website. Uh, you know, see the literature. Go to, get involved. It's Absolutely. really difficult these days to get people involved. Everybody should be putting at least 10% of their time into trying to save our civilization. But most people don't even know it's in danger. Well, that is a fact, and that's the whole purpose of Go Green Radio, to be honest. Paul, there's another question I want to ask you because it's an issue that you you touched on lightly in the book, but I would like for you to give us a little bit more of your thought on what's happening in the Arctic Circle. It's Melting, of course, everybody knows that very rapidly. We're seeing all kinds of things happening. We see a rush to militarize the area. We're seeing oil companies rush to drill. And you said something that I hadn't even considered before, but it's true. The Pacific and Atlantic Oceans are now flowing together, and there's unknown ramifications to that phenomenon. Talk yeah, to us it, about it, your it, thoughts on this. More on endangered, endangered species. The Arctic has a very big place in my heart because I worked there when I was a kid. I lived with the Inuit. Um, I actually named some places in the Canadian Arctic that you can see on a globe. So, uh, A, one of the good things is that the Inuit are beginning to take charge of uh, conserving animals. So, for instance, on an island called Walrus Island, where I hunted walrus with Eskimos in 1952, I went back by it in 1986, and the herds were huge because the local people had taken over uh, their their preservation. But... Um, the Arctic means a lot to all of us. In other words, as the ice melts up there, and it is melting and the coverage is getting smaller all the time, um, you warm the planet because, of course, ice reflects back the sun's energy uh, and oceans absorb it. So the more ice you melt, the more energy comes in and warms things, and the more ice you melt. And now we have these terrible uh, prospects with the methane, uh, which is trapped in ice-like formations uh, in the Arctic Oceans, beginning to melt and bubble out. And nobody knows exactly how much is coming out, but the prospects are pretty dim uh, because the methane is a much more active in the short-term greenhouse gas uh, than is carbon dioxide. And one scientist within the last couple weeks wrote and uh, said, if this is really happening, we're, and he had F star star D, <laughs> and you can translate it yourself. So yep. the Arctic is a key place. It's probably the source of the weird weather in North America. That is the, the changes in the jet stream that have been giving us cold in the east and drought in California and so on. So keep your eye on the Arctic. It's kind of the, uh, uh, the, the canary in the coal mine for our civilization. You know, your your book is entitled Hope on Earth, and we have just a, about a minute or so left. I'd like to give each of you a chance to give us that reason to hope and that one thing that each of us can do to promote hope on Earth, promote hope for our planet. Michael, we'll start with you. Save an animal. Recognize new data that's just come out that says not only the vertebrates but the invertebrates, the insects and spiders, are going extinct very rapidly. And so anybody can give a crumb to a bird. Anybody can rescue an animal. I don't care if it's, a, if it's teaching your child to save a bee, to, to, to look with marvel at a hummingbird, to save an ant, as E.O. Wilson has been promoting from Harvard for most of his remarkable career. Save an animal that's right in front of you and plant a native 
species, a tree. If you don't have a, a porch, get a pot and plant some milkweed for the monarchs that are going extinct, the butterflies. That's what I would recommend. Uh, I would say all those things and don't have more than one child and make sure that you create a world. Put some time into making a world that your child or two children, if you have two children, uh, are going to be able to live decent lives in. Thank you both for your wisdom. Thank you for your time and joining us on Go Green Radio. It was great to have you on. Again, we were discussing their new book, Hope on Earth. It's easily available. You can check it out. Thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.